Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Got a treat for you this week. I'm continuing, or rather I've just been continuing, uh, the conversation that I began with Mr. Tyler Bauer, one of the teachers at the Oaks Tutorials that meets here at the church, on the subject of baptism. You'll remember from a few weeks ago, we began a conversation at the request of some of the students who had asked uh, questions about uh, the differences between Baptist and Paedo-Baptist theology. We began a conversation on that topic. Uh, Mr. Bauer is a particular Baptist, uh, as distinct from a dispensational Baptist or a general Baptist. And as you know, I hold to uh, infant baptism, Paedo-Baptism, and also Paedo-Communion. So both of us have uh, quite well-defined views within the spectrum of, of Calvinist, Reformed, Evangelical views um, of baptism uh, in the modern world. And uh, our aim really was to try and make progress ourselves in understanding one another, uh, to help the young people to understand the different views we held, uh, and also to a limited extent, uh, or hopefully to a significant extent, to model the appropriate way to go about having these kinds of conversations. So what we decided to do in this session was to begin by uh, making sure we understood each other accurately and just correcting the picture uh, that I had of Mr. Bauer's view and that Mr. Bauer had of my view. And then we jump in just to pick up one particular question that each of us would like to ask the other. So I wanted to ask Mr. Bauer uh, what his view implies about the covenant status and relationship with Christ of people who may, because of a mental impairment or cognitive impairment of some kind or brain injury of some kind, may never be able to satisfy a Baptist's uh, standard for faith. And he wanted to ask me a question about the doctrine of covenant succession in a situation where you've got believing grandparents, non-Christian parents, and then the grandparents bring the children to be baptised. Now, both of those questions, actually, I thought the question that Mr. Bauer had for me was an extremely good question because uh, it stress tests, in a sense, um, my uh, understanding of the relationship between parents and their children and also the relationship between the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the one hand and the nurture that happens within a Christian family on the other. And that's one of the things that is rarely unpacked. So I found that a very helpful question. Um, uh, he said to me that he found my question helpful as well, um, which is good, I guess, because what it means is that both of us are being forced to sharpen and refine what we're saying. So I hope you find this conversation helpful. Um, it took about 25 or just under 30 minutes. Uh, the young people were very um, uh, thoughtful in uh, their responses. We didn't actually have time for them to uh, ask questions of them of their own. Uh, but they were models of uh, thoughtfulness and just engaging and listening carefully. And um, I hope perhaps we may have further conversations on maybe this, but maybe other topics as well, just to try and understand the texture of the Reformed Evangelical landscape uh, so we can understand our Christian brothers and sisters a little bit better. But with that, I'll leave you. hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, Mr. Bauer, Mr. Tyler Bauer and myself on the subject of baptism. God bless. Bye for now. Let me begin by... Well, thanking Mr. Tyler again for agreeing to this and thanking um, Jaden for asking the question that kicked it all off. Appreciate it very much. I'll pray and then um, we'll just jump straight in, I think. Yeah. And we have to finish at what, 20 to 1, is that correct? Or, or not uh, after that? Yeah, usually my class isn't right here on time. Right. So, okay. so if we think yeah. 20 to 1, maybe squeeze past a minute or two, but try and finish. 
Right, let me do this in thread and then we'll begin. <clears throat> Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for one another. Thank you for Mr. Bauer and for these students and for this opportunity we have to uh, wrestle with the teaching of your word. We pray that both in the content of what we discuss and the fresh considerations or conclusions we may be led to, and also in the manner and the tone of our interaction, we may delight you as we seek to wrestle together with difficult things in such a way that we bring glory to Christ and do good to his bride through our uh, labours today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, come on in. Come on in. No need to worry. Um, so you, you remember last time we had uh, an introductory, really introductory um, discussion, and then we dug a little bit deeper into Mr. Bauer's particular Baptist and my paid a Baptist plus paid a communion view. So I'm not going to skate over all that again. Uh, except to say that we, I think I'm going to begin by um, making sure I've got you right and inviting you to do the same for me um, as a, a methodological principle, really, to ensure when we're in conversations like this that we're actually dealing with a correct understanding of the person with whom we're disagreeing. So we'll start with that. And then as we talked about last time, we've, uh, there's loads of questions we can ask each other, but we've actually narrowed it down to just one question which won't resolve everything, but may take us into some deeper discussion. So, um, shall I kick off and, and I'll say what I think it is that you believe, and then you want to do the same for me, and then we'll, one of us ask the other the first question. Yeah. And we can, okay. And we, I mean, just, just in the mode of transparency, he and I have already asked each other these questions, and we've already talked about our answers with each other. So, there is no uh, attempt at gotcha-ing mm -hmm. happening between the two of us. We've already, we, we know what the other person's going to say in response to these sorts of things. And, and just so you know, when I've debated other Christians before, I've always insisted on talking with them beforehand. Because I do not want to go on TV or on a, a radio, um, if, if at all possible, um, within a situation where we could end up misunderstanding each other, I want to actually make progress. Yeah. Okay, so um, particular Baptist, not dispensational or general Baptist, and what that means is, um, in contrast with the Old Covenant, where um, you, you said the covenant is essentially familial, I think we all, we all noticed, perhaps you, you misspoke, you said New Covenant, but you meant Old Covenant when you're talking about the, the covenant is essentially familial, you're born or you marry into the covenant people of God. Under the New Covenant, uh, there is nobody who's in covenant with God except those who have faith. And faith is a, uh, has a, an element of conscious disposition towards Christ of some kind. Would that be right? Yeah. I, I, I want to maintain that there's a certain element of uh, a covenantal, I'm trying to think of the best words. Some kind of privilege. Well, there's a, there's a certain connection between like believers and their children. Right. That's what I was... Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, I would not say that they are like the the uh, children uh, uh, children the the children of believers who are not uh, repentant who are not believing. Uh, I would not consider them maybe full members of the right. covenant. I'm not sure the best way to phrase that, but and that's one of the things I was really interested in last week and wanted to kind of. Um, I was teasing out a little bit last week. So there are perhaps we could say in your view there are certain privileges associated with the covenant that come short of full covenant membership sure, for, yeah. for uh, children like yeah. your son Nelson. Yeah. 
uh, uh, but the, the full membership and therefore the sign associated with covenant membership awaits a profession of faith or, uh, which involves some kind of understanding at some level. Yeah. And one of the texts you cited, not the only text obviously, but Jeremiah 31 envisages that the new covenant community, there won't be a need to teach a man his brother or a man his neighbor um, saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. So the covenant is, so to speak, restricted to those who already know, whereas in my view, you have an infant who needs to be taught a great deal even after he's a member of that community. So one of the things we'd have to do, which we won't try and do today, is to look at Jeremiah 31. And obviously, there's a conversation there. So, yeah. But anyway, you're, that's your... Yeah, I'd be happy with that, that description. Right. So, um, hit me. With, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, think of me. my understanding would be that the, the, you want to maintain a strong continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You don't want to replace the familial connection mm-hmm. between the two covenants. Uh, and you're willing to say that, the, that baptism uh, is a direct fairly direct uh, connection between circumcision and the Old Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, the sign is circumcision. In the New Covenant, that sign is baptism. Uh, And uh, as believers have children, we put the sign and seal of the covenant upon our children because they're they're inheritors of the promise just as uh, the the children of the Israelites were inheritors of the promise in the the Old Testament. Uh, And therefore, that translates into communion, uh, because if they're members of the covenant, if they've been uh, been given the sign of the covenant, they should also participate in the meal of the covenant. Right, right. Uh, and on that, that point, we're agreed, right? Yeah. Once they're in, they get everything. Yeah. Yes. Okay. No, I like that. And my only um, uh, footnote would be um, that it's not as simple as saying baptism replaces circumcision. Right. Because, as you know, there are differences between them. And the way that you articulated it is very helpful because the, the key thing is the structure of the relationship or the covenant, and into that the sign fits. So it's not sometimes people will just go to one text, yeah, like Colossians two or something that mentions circumcision. Yeah. And think, oh, there we've got it. It's like no, that's not good enough. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with that. Um, yeah. And I was trying to not maybe I did say it. I was trying not to say baptism replaces. No, exactly. So, okay. and, you, and you didn't. Okay. I think that's. That's very helpful because I think as paedobaptists we need to do a better job than that because there are obvious differences between baptism and circumcision. Okay, so we've got, um, methodologically, I think we're, we're doing reasonably well at making sure we understand each other because I don't want to be attacking a caricature or a misunderstood version of what Mr. Bauer believes. Now, do you want to hit me with the first question or shall I hit you? Which one is totally up to you. You, you, you pick at this point. Uh, I'll put it up to you guys. So I've got, I've got a... A uh, Presbyterian question for him, and he's got a Baptist question for me. Which one would you rather hear first? <laughs> Baptist question. Okay, hit me. <laughs> okay, so um, my question is this. Uh, if you are going to make faith, by which you mean some kind of cognitive capacity which is directed towards Christ, and some, some level of, of ability to articulate that, how do you, or how would you, address the difficult situations in which you have somebody who, because of um, some kind of brain injury or some kind of mental handicap, is never likely, at any point in their life, to be able to articulate their faith, or maybe even understand the kind of 
the substance of the gospel. So an obvious example, um, if, if you had a child who was born to Christian uh, parents who tragically was uh, severely brain damaged during birth, um, so they were physically functioning but cognitively had very little capacity. It seems to me that the implication of your view would be such a person could never be baptized, such a person could never be uh, a member of the covenant. So my, my question for you would be, how do you handle that? Do you say, well, no, we'd make an exception because of their capacity, and then I want to know, oh, okay, well, why, where does the exception come from? Or would you say, no, we wouldn't make an exception, and that then, I think, might raise other issues down the yeah. road. So how do yeah. you handle that? I mean, uh, is that is a, Painful scenario, right? Uh, but it's a it's a good question, and it's a it's a major question that Baptists have to contend with. Right. Uh, there's no getting around it for us. So, in in the event that someone would never likely have the mental capacity to respond to 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 where uh, the elders of the church could look at them and go, they will never understand this cognitively. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that case, we would withhold baptism in the table from them, uh, in part because we think that we'll do nothing for them. Right. Uh, so we think that if they if they don't if they cannot cognitively grasp what the gospel is, uh, the the benefits of baptism or the table won't it won't they won't apply to them. Well, not right. uh, apply sounds bad. They won't work for them. Right. Uh, in the case of somebody who's just to make sure I've said this, in the case of somebody who's mentally handicapped but we think could understand, that would have to be on a, on a case-by-case issue to go, you know, do we think they're there? So, for example, uh, I have a cousin who has Down syndrome, and uh, he's, he's cognitively functioning enough to where I think he can grasp the gospel. Right. Uh, maybe not well, he may not be able to get into a deep understanding of it, but I would be willing to. I mean, he's uh, he, he's been baptized because he's he's Dutch Reformed, but uh, right. I'd be willing to baptize him as a believer because I think you know I think he can understand. Right. So so you're you're setting a low-ish bar for council's understanding, which is encouraging because there are encouraging for me because I have Baptist friends who want to set an extremely high bar that some of these people present here wouldn't clear. Right. Right. And I think that's actually quite problematic. Um, I want to set like I want to set an extremely low bar for for age and understanding. Right. I think because I think those go together regardless yeah. of mental capacity. So, okay, given that that's your response to this situation, the next step I'd want to lay before you is okay, doesn't that that response itself place you in a slightly awkward position in relation to other implications that it might have? So, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so first up, doesn't it amount to a view of the sacraments in which there really isn't any objective component? That is to say, a component which is independent of our subjective response. Um, whereas doesn't scripture say that God does things? Of course there's a subjective response. That, and the subjective response depends on who the people are. You know, Pastor Neil uh, has a, an understanding of the Lord's Supper that most of the rest of our church, almost all the rest of our church, doesn't have. So he subjectively appropriates um, blessings that other people lack because of their more um, 
basic understanding. But isn't God feeding him and feeding others objectively? So that's one question I have about the objective character of the sacraments. And then the second question, I guess I'm, I'd just love to hear you respond to the, the suggestion that, that it's slightly awkward to be saying that Jesus is not going to welcome into covenant relationship people who are the weakest and most vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and by extension, presumably, not just um, uh, brain-injured infants not baptized, but uh, elderly people with dementia not communed, would that be an implication? So there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a cluster of questions there. Yeah. One about the nature of the sacraments, one about who is welcomed. Yeah, uh, and I, I accept the, the awkwardness of it because I think it is. There is a certain awkwardness that we have to deal with. Uh, with something like a, an elderly person who's got dementia, if, if that person were a believer beforehand uh, and then their, their mind slipped, I wouldn't have a problem right. continuing. Right. So that particular implication, yeah. you said that's not a problem because yeah. they've, been, they've been welcomed on the grounds of their faith, that Jesus is going to keep them. Yeah. Well, okay, got right, Yeah. Fine. So that actually answers that question. From my perspective, yeah, but the, but the other ones remain that the young, vulnerable, and of course, then the nature of the sacraments. Yeah, um, the when it comes to other people, uh, so somebody who's never cognitively, cognitively been able to respond, um, I don't. I also don't have a problem because of of my. Well, I don't. I don't view it as a problem because of my my status as a particular Baptist. That mm-hmm. that uh, God will call to him all that He will call to him. So uh, I think an, an another interesting example is what happens to the uh, the embryo that right. dies before it's born uh, of natural causes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how God sorts those kinds of beings, but uh, like what he like how he process is their salvation. I don't know what that looks like on, on God's end, so to speak. Uh, but I don't have a problem saying God might either save or damn someone in that situation. Right. So uh, if somebody could be saved in the womb without baptism, Yeah, they can be saved at the age of you know, 30 or 50, having lived an entire life with um, uh, I think what is sometimes called a persistent vegetative state. Yeah. Um, and and Right. Okay. That's uh, I also don't have a problem. Just to, I mean, these are connected things. So if if someone were to come to faith at the age of fifty, and then uh, an anvil were to fall from the sky and kill, them, right, uh, right. or something like that, before, so they're never they're never baptized, they've never communed. Right. I I don't have a like, I don't see it as an issue that of their salvation or something like right, that. Right, the, right. the baptism is not I don't think tied into that. Right. And, and you guys will recognize that as um, something that's similar to what Calvin says about emergency baptism. So Calvin doesn't think emergency baptism for, let's say, infants that are very sick is a good idea. If a kid's sick, call a doctor. Don't call yeah. a priest. I mean, call, call, the, call the minister, if you like, to pray, but, but the priority should be the medical care yeah. and prayer rather than baptism. Yeah. So that's, that's another kind of connection with um, historic paedo-baptist reformed so when it comes to the sacraments, mm. I also don't have a problem there being a slight uh, subjectivity to them. I don't, I, in my view, I don't need it to be entirely objective. Uh, I would say that there's still a level of objectivity because I think it's true that whoever repents and believes uh, can experience these benefits. 
Right. Um, so I think that that part is objectively true. That it applies to all people. It, for anybody who repents and believes, whoever that might be, it is objectively true for all people that that's the case. Right. But I, I, I do agree with the way you've said it. I think there is a subjective component to it that it only applies right. to those who do. Like, the, these things only work for those who do. Um, so I, 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 and I agree that there's a certain tension there. But uh, So when it comes to the sacraments, uh, in the, the way that I understand it best, it seems to me that God simply only does these things. He only works these things right, right, with right. those who have repented and believed, right. uh, such that uh, God does not administer his grace to those who have not. Right. So... I want to give you as much time to challenge me as I've had to challenge you. So if I could make just a couple of comments before you, know, you come back at me with whatever your question is. I guess I want to make two. I, I agree with you that the objective blessings are not found in people in whom there is no faith. Um, that's the importance of the doctrine of infant faith which I know we've talked about before, and we might want to talk about in future, um, although it will be somewhat um, an appendix to an important one. Yeah. So Psalm 22, for example, I think I mentioned that before. Um, but I think I'd still want to say, a root where we've got to in this portion of our discussion is a debate about the nature of the sacraments and, and how they function, how God uses them, what God is doing in them. Because I'd want to say that there is an objective efficacy irrespective of the faith or lack of faith of the recipient. It just might not be objectively a blessing. It might objectively be a curse. And I, I remember we, we talked about this, um, the baptism liturgy that Pastor Neil has employed here for many years, I think is spectacularly good um, reformed sacramental theology because one of the questions he uh, asks I agree is, with that. Right. And one of the questions he asks is something, I'm paraphrasing, do you understand that... Um, if you should neglect your obligations as parents to raise this child within the covenant, then this baptism may become a curse, not blessing. In other words, it's not that God will be doing nothing. Rather like in 1 Corinthians 11, that's why some of you have died, or fallen asleep or need to die. Um, because God has been doing things in these sacraments, um, and there have been things that are bad for you because of your faithlessness. So I guess... If we're really going to take this further, what's so helpful about it is that we've now got to think about the nature of sacraments yeah. as such. Um, so uh, feel free to come back at me on those or take all the rest of the time we have to interrogate me with, with your question, whatever you want to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we can just set those other parts aside because I think that would just lead into a whole different conversation. So I'll, I'll just ask you my question for their sake. Um, so... Uh, I'll try to articulate this in a way that's helpful for them to understand what I was yeah, getting yeah, at on Monday. Yeah. Um, in uh, Genesis 17, when Abraham is given the the command, promise uh, of the covenant of, you know, this shall apply to you and to all these generations, circumcise every male. Uh, and that shall be the sign of the covenant. Uh, when, we, when we look, take that and then look into the new covenant, uh, to me, Genesis 17 seems multi-generational, right. yes. uh, such that there's no there's there's no direct uh, connection between the parent and their uh, 
children. It seems like to me it's it's communal, communally wide. It would work down the generations. Yeah, uh, for for everybody. So looking at the new covenant, the, uh, I think the way that I asked it to you was if you had a set of believing grandparents mm. and unbelieving children mm. who then had children uh, and the grandparents brought the grandchildren forward for baptism, would right. you baptize <laughs> those grandchildren b- even though their parents are unbelievers? Uh, unbelievers? Yeah. And I, I think this is a, a brilliant question, if you let me say, by me saying so, because um, I've never been asked this before. Oh, um, good. And um, what it does is to stress test and interrogate the paedobaptist um, to a thousand generations claim, and to you and your children and your children's children after you. So let me, let me tell you what I think I'd do. Um, it would depend on the attitude of the parents to this request and on the prospects for the the children being raised in such a way that the uh, family obligations of the covenant covenant could at some level be fulfilled. So I'll give you a couple of extreme examples and to, to demonstrate it and then I'll explain the kind of thinking behind it. If you had a situation where the grandparents secretly brought the grandchildren uh, knowing that the parents would Object and were never planning to let them come to church again and would be furious if they heard that what was going on. Their answer would be no. Whereas if you had a situation at the other end of the scale where they, the parents said, well, you know, we just don't believe in Jesus, um, uh, and, and, and yet we can see that the Christian faith does some good for people, and we're content not only for our kids to be baptised at your request, but also for you to have some input to their teaching and their nurture and to pray with them and to read scripture with them. It's just we don't believe this. That's the opposite end of the spectrum. And at that point, I'd say yes. And there's this nasty gray area in the middle where you're you're trying to work out the answer to this question. Is it the case that this baptism isn't going to just stand alone, but is going to function within a meaningful context of covenant nurture? And if there is that context, or rather to the extent that it seems likely that there will be that context. To that extent, I'd be inclined to say yes. And so you can see the underlying um, reasoning and actually the challenge to reformed paedobaptists. Because what we've got to realize is that baptism does not work by magic. We, we We have a doctrine of the efficacious character of the sacraments in connection with the means that God has decreed, which are, and will include, Faithful worship within the church, um, nurture by your family, um, uh, growth in uh, knowledge and holiness as you're able, as you grow. And if those things aren't present, well, then we're back to Parson Neal's baptism liturgy, which is not just Parson Neal's, it's a very good historic baptism liturgy, or reflects historic baptism liturgies, that just being baptized actually starts to be uh, a sacramental curse because you've invoked God and you've drawn near to Christ, but in rebellion against him, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Hence, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 9, for example. So the the reason I like this question is because it makes me think, right, I need to make sure that my enthusiasm about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the whole shaping of our service of worship around the Lord's Supper is correlated with a wholehearted commitment from parents 
to raise their kids in faithfulness, and young people and all of us ourselves to continue to fulfill our membership pledges to use the means God has appointed for our growth in godliness and Christlikeness. And so if a, if a grandparent is in a position to have that kind of influence on a, on a young child or on a baby, I'd say yes. Even if the, the, the influence is somewhat muted because, you know, grandparents. But if it's, I, I, I'm not going to separate one means that God employs from the other means, as though the other means are irrelevant. So hit me with your response to that, because I know, you know we've talked about this yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, and because we're, we're virtually out of time, I guess I'll give a, a comment on this uh, that we can talk about later, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so to me, uh, it it does not seem like it, the the new covenant. This seems to have a direct correlation between covenantal status and faith. Is that rough, roughly fair? Um, uh, in a very 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 broad way. Yes, yes. With the addition of the uh, biblical claim that it is possible to apostatize, sure, and therefore to yeah. an unbelief is breaking of the covenant and leads to relinquishment of that covenant status. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the New Covenant, in some way, for both of us, yes. is in some way linked to faith. It's yeah. not clear to me that covenantal status is linked to faith in the Old Covenant. That To me, that one seems more uh, familial and automatic. And I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on that, but uh, to me, that, that seems fairly clear from my point of view... Uh, so to to sh- so from from the old covenant, you've got this direct familial connection that, to me, seems distinct from the faith of the person. It seems disjunct when we move to the the new covenant to try to, to try to hold to continuity and not have that same direct status regardless of faith. Right. And so, so if I can comment, I think yeah. the, the next stage we'd have to go to is not just the issues raised by nature of the sacraments in response to your, the question I asked you, but. One of the things we'd have to look at is that characterization of yours that under the old covenant, covenant membership was familial, not linked to faith necessarily. Under the new covenant, there's a change. I think I'd want to interrogate that quite, quite closely. Yeah. Um, and I, I, th- I think there's a distinction between saying um, covenant status is familial and not linked to faith and saying... Um, Covenant status is presumptive and is maintained on the basis of ongoing faithfulness, which includes faith. Yeah. And, um, and that then accounts for the vast numbers of Gentiles brought into the, the people of God under the older covenants. And the numbers are huge, actually, and really significant at key moments in Israel's history. So, again, that's not something we can sort out now. Um, I think, probably, we have maybe a minute or two left... I want to just give you the floor again. Um, any final comments you want to make in, in just wrapping up at this stage? Yeah. Uh, so just to you guys, uh, hopefully we've each articulated how we handle certain issues well. Uh, and we both know that, uh, so hopefully you can see that uh, each of us has issues that we have to deal with mm. when it comes to our view. Uh, it's not as though I have a privileged view and I, you know, I don't have issues. It's not that he has a privileged view and he doesn't have issues. We both have issues that we at least have to deal with. Those issues aren't defeaters for us directly. It may be that they are. Okay? Uh, it may be that the way either of us have articulated this uh, is, it shows that there are flaws in the underlying structure of our view. But the point that I want all of you to see uh, is that just because we have 
uh, have our view and we hold to them strongly doesn't mean, one, that we don't have issues, and two, hopefully it doesn't mean that we can't potentially resolve those issues in consistency with our view, because that's where it really hinges. Uh, if, if I can't answer the view of how certain, uh, like, sacramental efficacy, in my view, my view's kind of shot. Um, if he can't answer uh, covenantal continuity and perhaps discontinuity, uh, he's got issues. Uh, so there, there's things that we have to be able to reconcile within our views, and we both recognize, hey, I think the other guy's view has problems, but I also recognize that there are things that I have to contend with in my own view that aren't directly and readily apparent. So, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's tempting to ask you guys if you have any specific questions, but your teachers in your next class will not be happy with us if we do that. Um, <laughs> shall I do this in prayer? And then, uh, if you do have any comments or questions you want to come back to either of us, please do. I'm going to suggest that we don't, at this time, schedule another discussion like this. Not because there isn't more to talk about, but because there's so much more to talk about, yeah. we never stop. Um, but we can certainly do things like this again, either on this topic or on other topics. There might be topics where we agree. <laughs> you know, no. um, uh, I, I enjoy talking with this guy because it sharpens me and informs me about other traditions, and there's a great deal we have in common as well as some textures. I was going to say, it's, it's important to know, too, I think, just by you and I talking, um, our views of baptism are actually really close. Mm. They're not completely overlapped, but comparative to other views, they are close to each other. Yeah. So it's not as though we have, like, we're just over here and we're, we're yelling at each other we, we're pretty close we just have slight nuances that stop us from being completely connected thank you let yeah. me lead us in prayer and then you guys can go back to school merciful father thank you for this community of young people thank you for uh, Mr. Bauer and for the blessing that it's been to me just to think through these issues with him we pray Heavenly Father that we would all grow in understanding and faithfulness as we seek to wrestle with uh, difficult and challenging uh, questions and combine as we do so the, um, the faithfulness to uh, your word which means that in the end on the last day one of us will have to change our mind if not both with a recognition of the provisionality of our understanding at this time so that we approach these matters with charity and grace pray for these young people this afternoon pray that they'd avoid the post-lunch slump in energy and concentration and have a fantastic time studying and talking and reading and writing together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to get to glory and find out the Lutherans were right all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now come on, keep realistic. <laughs>